Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 9, the bonus edition. Uh, as mentioned last week in episode 9 proper, um, I wanted to make available the full unedited uh, conversation that I had with Eden Blackman uh, back in May. Uh, episode 9 proper, as it were, was uh, me cutting it down with producer Bod and putting in the music and all of that kind of stuff that we like to do when we have conversations with people. But this... Um, because Eden and I spoke for so long and there were so many excellent interesting stories that I couldn't fit into the proper episode I wanted to make that available and that's what we've done uh, now so uh, without further ado uh, I just want to uh, give you a couple of couple of uh, warnings from an audio perspective uh, the levels might not be as clean and crisp as you might expect uh, especially when it comes to hearing my voice uh, which is kind of pointing away from the microphone and normally we mess around with that in post uh, post-production but yeah, you know, you get to hear Eden, you get to hear the stories that, that he's saying rather than me. But yeah, just a heads up that it, it might not be the cleanest of audio that you've heard, um, but it should still be a, a really enjoyable listen. Uh, so that's about it, really. I, we will see you next week for episode 10, proper back to the normal regime. But here's a bonus episode, bonus episode nine uh, of Threadwork Podcast with Eden Blackman. Cheers. Right then. So when did you first become aware of music? Um, I probably became aware of music when I was about, I'd probably say six or seven, um, living in Wales and mum and dad, um, mum and dad were both music fans. I mean, my mum's Welsh, so it kind of, you have to like music if you're Welsh, which is probably why I like it. Um, and my dad's a, a complete Elvis nut. Um, yeah, I, I like a just not obsessive, not like you know I've been on certain artists, um, but but just loves him and it's his sort of probably go to artist. So were you listening to Elvis a lot? Was that always? So, yeah, played? I think I remember Mum used to sing a lot while doing the Hoovering. That's got a memory I remember, and and used to play sort of you know we're Welsh, so we listened to Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones, and that was it. Um, and then my dad used to play a lot of Elvis. Yeah, and there was a, there was kind of. Always an Elvis record. I want to say there was always... I mean, I listened to music all the time, you know, on all the time. But it wasn't like that. But it was like, you know, on a Sunday, my dad would put maybe put an album on in the afternoon and then play something else. And they both, mum and dad, both liked Elvis. So I suppose it was an easy way to for them to both to listen to music they like. It's, you know, there's nothing worse than sort of... I think if you're going or you're married or you're going out with someone and you put an album on there, they're a bit, they're a bit ugh. And vice versa, because it's a sharing experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, that's an interesting. That's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, actually. Yeah, yes, it can be a very sharing. Yeah. Experience, but it can also be a very solitary one. But so, but but in the family home, in this kind of respect, yeah. it's very much a sharing. Yeah. So I th- I suppose I was just pull, I, it was just part of the family thing, right? You know, it was kind of like they put an album on and you just listen to it, and then you suppose you start to form. I don't know. I guess you. Sp- I, I I didn't. I never really liked, never really appreciated that I kind of liked certain Elvis records over others until, you know, decades later, really, I suppose, right. when I sort of, because I think the music, and it's, you know, it's probably something I'll have when I have kids, and I'll probably batter them for saying it, but, you know, you don't really want to like the music your parents like, because mm-hmm. you want to be, when you're growing up, you know, from sort of, you know, up to the informative years, you're trying to be everything that they're not. And then what you end up doing is fighting that for years mm-hmm. and then doing, becoming what they are and being really happy. Yeah. That's what I've learned as a you know, 50-year-old man. Yeah. 
Um, being normal is awesome. You know, I've tried for decades not to be and, and, and probably didn't, shouldn't have made it where I am now, but in terms of being on the planet. But, um, but, but it was kind of like you, di you didn't really kind of, you know, wasn't, you didn't want to like what your parents liked. You know, that was, that was kind of why I suppose rock and roll came along and punk and all the movements we've had. Um, I remember one particular thing that really, and it's funny, I just, just triggered in my mind saying that. I remember watching live as a kid, as a 10 year old in Stansted, the Bill Grundy Sex Pistols um, interview. Okay. And I remember seeing that. And I remember to this day, and it was 40 years ago, but being really, you know, Jesus. You can swear. Yeah, okay, I was like, okay, fuck, okay. you know, um, wow. It was really, I know it sounds nothing now, but you know, in 1977, it was, it was to see that happen on, on, on Tea Time TV with, you know, with everyone's housewife's favorite Bill Grundy was a real moment. Yeah. And I remember that really turning me maybe into alternative music because I didn't really, unless I was 10 living in Stansted, I'm not, I'm not going to the 100 Club or hanging out in King's Road, you know. Uh, but you, I, those, those, those moments have to come. Yeah. They have I, to come somewhere. Yeah, and it, that really turned me on to music that probably wasn't on the radio. Yes. You know, Radio 1, Daytime, and as uh, those are the kind of records that you like. But it was, you know, Jesus, what, you know, who are they? And I kind of started sort of in a very amateur way, sort of trying to seek out some punk records and, and kind of hearing stuff on that and hearing that it was, you could just play in a band, even if you couldn't play the, couldn't play the instrument like them. And Sid Vicious made a very short career of it. Mm. Um, and I suppose that was a pivotal moment thinking about it, that, that I suppose that was when it, I suppose my ears, I suppose my ears then started to filter and notice the difference between records. You know, it's the difference between, I don't know, uh, an ABBA record and a, and a yeah. kind of Ruts record or something. And that was quite a pivotal moment thinking about it. Um, so did you, so, so so that's a 10. Yeah. Right? So you've heard that, you've suddenly discovered the Sex Pistols and what have you. Yeah. Was there an immediate kind of pushback against Elvis and everything from yeah. that moment? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like... Is 10 still young for yeah. to suddenly go, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a punk now. So. Well, I didn't realise, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't realise that I wasn't anti-Elvis or I wasn't anti any of those artists. I just suppose my ears hadn't been woken up to the differences. I think it's sort of, it's a bit like eating. If you eat, you know, if you've got a fairly conservative palate and, you know, you're happy and totally happy with eating certain foods. And then if somebody takes you into this incredible, like, Italian restaurant, French restaurant or Mexican restaurant or, or Thai, the first time you have Thai and Chinese, you're like, so what is this? Absolutely. And then you get an idea of, well, okay, listen, pie and chips is awesome. And, you know, eggs, ham and, you know, chips is fantastic. But geez, you know, a pad thai you say yeah. you know it's kind of like you know it's like whoa where did noodles yeah. you know so it's i suppose it's the sort of learning it's, it's all about taste when you think about it whether it's in your ears or in your mouth or or whatever it is it's kind of like i suppose i just started to develop tastes of of music and i and it still continues today as the same it does with restaurants and art or whatever you know you're constantly learning about things you like and i suppose i suppose that was a moment when music started to become quite important. I mean, football was still super important, um, more so. I mean, I can probably say from, from the ages of, I don't know, 10 up to, I would say, oh, hang on, let me know where this are, 12 or 13. My bedroom wall was were, were covered in Leeds United posters. Um, and that was it. Mm. And then I remember a time, and I know exactly when it happened, where they they started to 
there were you know, a couple of rock bands slipped in and then at the end of it it was just wall-to-wall Koran covers um, and I know exactly when that happened and it was a massive moment a music moment in my life and I, 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 I think I talked about it on my first Soho radio show and it was I had a mate of mine Guy Downs that I went to school with who, who we're still friends on Facebook which is lovely and he had an older brother and we were 12 possibly 13 and his older brother was probably 15 16 but his older brother had the record collection and we used to go around to his house when his mum and dad weren't there after school that hour and a half 90 minutes of like kind of like when you're finding out who you are and he put on on vinyl obviously the second side of acdc if you want blood you've got it first track whole lot of rosie a, a, a volume I've still never heard since this <laughs> <laughs> since this day. I mean, I've been to a lot of concerts. I've probably lost half my hearing, but I've never heard a, a record as loud. And I just stood there, and and life changed. It genuinely did. It was like fucking hell. I Jesus. I it's mean, it's hard to underestimate just how important moments like that. Yeah. Are. Uh, I, that, that moment where everything just stops. I've, I've never heard, I've never heard a record like it. And I've heard a million, a billion records. And, and, and I've heard better and worse records. And, but, but every time I hear that, I've got the vinyl copy. And I'm, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I've, I've kept all my vinyl, I've kept all my CDs, which is another conversation. Mm-hmm. But putting, putting that vinyl on, I, I know exactly where the clicks are. And then the audience, it's a live record, if you don't know, but you, the audience come in and then it's da-na-na-na-na-na-na, Angus! And you're like, Gee! and then it goes on for about four minutes. There's a mental blistering guitar solo from Angus Young, which has no relevance to the actual studio version, but it's now the version everyone. If you ask somebody to, you know, to kind of air guitar a whole lot of reasons, they'll do the live version and not the studio version, which is out on Let There Be Rock, I think. Um, and it just changed my mind. It was just, I was like, Jesus Christ, what's this? And it was similar to saying, have you tried Mexican food? No, yeah. let's try it all because this is amazing. It was Absolutely. a moment kind of like, of just like, what else is there? It was a real urge and a real desire and a real, it was like a primeval thing. And I'm going to sound like a prick for saying that, but it was like, what more, more, yeah, more. It was like, what more? I needed to be fed. I needed to, you know, is, do, do they do other stuff? Is there other tracks? Like is, there's albums of it. Oh my God. You know, it's kind of like a real moment. So was that, did that embark you on a kind of heavy rock, hard yeah. rock kind of jaunt? Mm. Which has stayed to me today. I, I still, I mean, if you, if I were a genre of music, it would be, it would be heavy rock, heavy metal. I always hated the phrase heavy metal because I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was really stupid and obviously when they used it in, when Vivian used it, it uh, had it written very metal on his on his <laughs> denim jacket in the young ones I was like it really is one of the most stupidest genres but I love it yeah. and I think it was just I suppose in a way I suppose you Elvis you know like John Lennon said it before Elvis there was nothing and Elvis made rock and roll and then every band has irrelevant who they are they have they have a bloodline through to Elvis and, and I suppose what ACDC did where they were they were essentially a kind of rock blues band on the first mm-hmm. couple of albums and then they just went hang on our amps can go up to 11 yeah. let's see what we can do and they were the first proper band i ever went to see the first band i ever went to see was a guy called a band called diamond head and i saw them because i've got a thing for dates 12th of may 1982 um where was that that was at the cambridge sea cadet hall Okay, right. But the first band I pro- first band uh, proper band I went to see was ACDC on the eighteenth of October nineteen eighty two. It was a Tuesday, 
and Y&T supported it and it was at Wembley Arena which is about four miles away from where I'm sitting and I stood there for the whole show and with my mouth open because mm. I was just like and ACDC aren't a they're not like with respect they're not like Robbie Williams or like or like Kiss they don't put on a show show they mm-hmm. just play there's very little chat between the audience there's very much chat between Brian Johnson about you know everything alright how we doing none of that like you mm. know try the fish I'm here all week yep. none of those conversations they just track 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 and <clears throat> hearing that record at Guy Downs's house sometimes in 1980 that was all I cared that was all I wanted to know was about rock music and that went from I mean, you know, the Friday Rock Show was a thing uh, which beautifully started at 10 o'clock on a Friday, which is where my Soho radio show started. So I think it's like, I always kind of, it's a beautiful little thing. Um, what station was that? So that was Radio 1. Okay. Tommy Vance, um, who's no longer with us, sadly. Sure. Um, he had the Friday Rock Show and it was three hours of rock music that you had no possible way of hearing anywhere else. It was, you know, this was... You know, and I'm, I'm talking about the millennials here. There was no Spotify. There was no. Um, there was no internet. There was no ripping records for free. You had to buy records or borrow them from your mates and and record them illegally. Do you think there's enough? Uh, so, so uh, yeah. of course, the people of our generation uh, and what have you, we're very keenly aware of that. But do you think that's something? I mean, this isn't a kind of old kid, blah blah blah. Yeah, blah. yeah. The, the, point, today. the point is, yeah, you today ruining it for us. <laughs> no, but the point about that is, it, it's hard to underestimate the importance of that. The fact that there wasn't immediacy, mm. that there wasn't the immediacy of access mm. to all these different types of music. Mm. You had to go and search. Yeah. Or you had to be really lucky and have a mate. Yeah. Who had an older brother yeah. or something along those lines, and that those kind of, you know, serendipitous. Uh, chain of events it's mm. hard to understand yeah it is because you weren't it wasn't a case that you were spoon fed them on a friday but on spotify with an called you know a thing called new music friday it, it, you had to go and find them or you had to um i mean there was there was a couple of music magazines i used to buy or music papers um there was melody maker and enemy which i really sound old now because none of them are around but there was one called sounds and melody maker was the more of a kind of punky i suppose they used to write more punk alternative Enemy was you. You'd be kind of what you what would be known as indie music now, but the kind of that real kind of the buzzcocks and the kind of the moments. Mm. And then Sounds was a rock magazine, a rock paper, and I would just consume that. I would get it and read it from page to page. And then Kerrang came along, or to give it its problem, Kerrang, oh, which nice. is why it's called that. Um, uh, that came along, and that was if you're and if you're a fan of any any football team or any artist. Any, any anyone if they had a magazine that was just full of that you would go oh my days and I again consumed it I used to just read it from cover to cover and there'd be reviews and there'd be stuff like that and it would just be because it was heavy metal or hard rock there were only a few kids at your school that liked it so it wasn't like there were huge communities of people you could jump online and go hey what's the new you know, no, what's the new Pixies record like and I'd go you know John from Charleston would go well I don't think it's as good as la 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 yeah. you know it, it was just a case of like do you know what have anyone got it shit no one's got it I need to get it yep and I tell this story, and it's, it's, it's absolutely true, and again, it's going to make me sound really old, but I am. I used to, when I was at school, I used to have a paper round, and I used to get £2.50 a week. I used to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, after school, delivering about 70 papers around Cambridge, and I get £2.50 a week. It beggars belief how much, you know, what that is worth now. But anyway, so every week I'd get £2.50 in cash in a little brown envelope, and uh, which is a theme that's continued to this day. Um, but... Uh, 
every two weeks, um, I would get I would have five pounds, yep. and five pounds was enough to go to Andy's Records in Cambridge and buy an album. So for two weeks, I would put an enormous amount of pressure, and although I didn't know the name the name of the word at the time, anxiety on myself to go right. I've got one shot. I can buy one record, and if I get it wrong, th- I, that's it for two weeks. Yeah, I can't buy another one. If I buy the Duff album and put it one, <gasps> no, because you really couldn't take vinyl back then. It no, wasn't a thing. It wasn't. It wasn't as cool as like you get a CD and you know, like it. Take it back. Yeah, sure. Rough trade. Yeah, whatever. You just couldn't do it. So you like, and I used to buy an album every two weeks, and it would be, it would be like the Crown Jewels. I'd take it home and I be really careful putting it on and putting the needle on and you know and just hope that I bought the right one because you couldn't stream it you couldn't hear it anywhere else it was it was like going to see a film with no knowledge yeah you, you can't you can't say I didn't like that one yeah can I please have two hours mm. back? no it doesn't exist did you so, ever so when you went into Andy's just, just, a, yeah. just a quick one in, in, in Antwerp whenever you went in there would you ever was there anything playing that you'd be like What's this? No, because uh, because I was um, thirteen or fourteen, my my ears were closed, okay. and at that age or certainly at that time, you the idea of liking other music, you felt that you were it was like sport supporting another team. It was kind of like you can't you can't like that Eden. You know you're a rock fan. You can't like Japan or you can't like Kraftwerk or you can't like whoever that is because they're not rock and you it was it was a weird not that I'd ever done it but it was a kind of like coming out I suppose you were yeah, like Jesus yeah. I've got these feelings for a Duran Duran record what am I how am I ever going to live with myself it's so and, true you know it's kind of things like that were, so no I didn't it's something I do now and I've discovered a lot of amazing bands by just going down to Rough Trade and Port Bella Road and just wandering around and hearing stuff but I never really took myself out of the heavy rock scene um and i went to see all the bands and my dad and my mum and dad were amazing the my dad used to, so i lived in cambridge and there used to be the ipswich gomon and used to get bands they were the nearest place that people the, the bands would come to because cambridge at that point didn't have the corn exchange it closed down it hadn't been it hadn't been reopened so there was no live scene so my dad used to drive me either up to ipswich or down to to london to see a gig and I was thinking about this the other day. I bought some. I just bought some um, Father John Misty tickets on an app. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I love Father John Misty. Oh, so but they've just released the tickets for this this tour he's doing in October. Not doing a London show, so we're going to go down and see, see him in Portsmouth. Anyway, I bought these things on an app. Put got downloaded the app. Bought the tickets. Bang. And it suddenly brought my mind back to when I was sort of thirteen and, and like Kiss or Ozzy Osbourne or Motorhead or Iron Maiden would put a show on uh, in Ipswich Gomon. And I would have to write a letter. I mean, this is going to blow your mind if you're under 30. Blo- write a letter to it, asking, please, could I purchase two tickets for Iron Maiden on the September to so-and-so, you know, in 1982, and have my dad write a cheque that I would give him then my pocket money to pay for the tickets, and then send it off and wait, and then get the tickets back. And of I used to always... because you can't locally buy the tickets. Yeah. And I used to always put on it, please, can you get me the closer tickets closer to the stage? That's amazing. I never thought there's the, the logistics aspect of that. I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm from London originally. Mm. You know, every band played London. It was fine. Yeah. And I could go and I could probably go and buy my tickets. Yeah. You're absolutely yeah. right. You can't Geographically, it was impossible for me to get to it, switch or London to buy a ticket. Yeah. So I used to have to write a letter. 
And I was thinking about this the other day, just, you know, I, I was in the, you know, I was, in, I was in my bathroom, ping, text from an app called Dice. Father John Misty tickets have just gone on sale. So I open my phone, I click the app, and in about three seconds, I've got a pair of tickets for Father John Misty. And I'm like, I talk about the 14-year-old Eden quite a lot, but the 14-year-old Eden, would, that would have blown his mind of that you could do this. So, so then I used to sort of go to sort of gigs and stuff like that, and, and, and you know, Dad used to come out and go and wait in a pub for me and my mates, and Guy used to be one of them. And we used to see a bunch of bands. And that was when I really went, this is what I, this is what I look at. And then outside of that, I started then, I talk about sort of coming out, but, um, but, but in terms of, I then started to go hear bands like Japan that I got really into, and was like, it, I like it. It's not anything like Quiet Riot, mm. but it's I like it. And then I started getting into the kind of I got in Duran quite a bit. I got into kind of um, Japan hugely. I think I was sort of in love with how fucking cool they looked for a start. Um, Where did I, you first come across? I can't remember. I think it was somebody at school uh, was a fan, and they lent me maybe Night Porter album, or, or or maybe even it wasn't all on canvas because I because I liked them before they kind of were Jews splitting up um, but it was after they'd gone from the kind of alternative sound into the kind of you know I suppose they you know that kind of I, they, they were classed as new romantic I'm not mm. exactly sure what they were called but but that kind of nice stuff and I still I'm still a fan of them today I still listen to David Sylvian quite a bit I've mm. wanted to meet him I wouldn't know what the hell to say to him but um, then I started then in terms of my ears started being a bit more open yeah. and I remember at school you were either a punk a skinhead a rock fan or a new romantic yeah. and never did they twain me you know it was kind of like you weren't you couldn't be you couldn't kind of like ACDC and the specials yes I've always been fascinated by by that uh, segregation of of scenes and what have you it's a clan it is a I clan, think it's clans it? I do do you think it's, do you think it's yeah I don't think it's gan, gangs I think it's a clan I think it's a you look for something to sort of associate yourself I you're, like you're trying to find out who you are yeah. And you are then you kind of become one of that clan. Yes. Yeah. No. I think I think you're right. And I, I, from a personal perspective, I always find it interesting. The thing I love to ask people about um, belonging to to a scene or a mm. movement or, mm. or a clan. Mm. As you, you put it perfectly. So you've articulated that perfectly. For me personally, I always felt that really close association, that affinity to drum and bass first. Yeah. Of all. So I, like you, to a certain extent, I was really into heavy rock, but it was it wasn't quite as straight down the line as that. Yeah, I mean, Guns N' Roses were all encompassing yeah. and, all, or, and, and, and everything mm. for me. But when the first time I felt like I belonged to something was when Drummer Boy. When I got yeah. into Drummer Boy, I remember. And yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, and but it was so true. When I think about it, actually, it was quite a, quite a short period of time. It was only two years. It felt like forever. Yeah, time. yeah. And it wasn't that I wouldn't listen to anything else because I think about that time and I was like oh I listen to that and I listen yeah. to that and I listen to that yeah. but at the same time it was I lived and breathed it yeah. and I tell I know what you mean about that and do you so so was there was there anyone who danced between the the, the clans the, the yeah I mean genres? definitely definitely coming in at sort of before I left school um, it was you know I kind of moved into that new romantic scene I suppose and a big Duran and, and Japan fans and then Did after you actually come in one day like 
like in Sing Street. Well, it's, it's funny you say that actually because it's a true story. So um, when I was, you know, when I was in that kind of heavy, my heavy metal phone, I decided that I wanted to have long hair, which is something I've always wanted to have, and I've never managed to do it. I've always wanted to look like <laughs> I've always wanted to look like David Coverdale, circ sort of circus nineteen eighty seven with his long, bl flowing, blonde, highlighted hair. But it's, it's something I never merged to pull together. Um, yeah, I think so. But um, I'd always wanted long hair and I kind of grew it and grew it and grew it. And my, every, you know, what, two months, my, you know, the hairy dress used to come to my mum and dad's house, a lady called Anne, and she used to cut their hair. She wasn't particularly good with respect, but, you know, she did a good job. And then there'd be the argument between me and mum how long I could keep it. And it would go on, it would be, it would be like... It's like North and South Korea now. It's like neither of them are going to relent. You know, they might give a half a half or kind of say an inch because they wouldn't even an inch would have been amazing in those days on my hair. And and I kept I had to you know I had an awful haircut. It was just long. It was kind of but it was just long everywhere. It wasn't even long. It was just kind of like a bowl haircut. But I mean nothing to how I look now. And then I decided <clears throat> there was a, well, actually was a kid at school called Edward, and he was a big Japan fan. And I think it might have been him that lent me the record. And he overnight sort of got his hair cut in a sort of David Sylvian type kind of wedge. And the girls suddenly loved him. And I had no luck at school at all because, well, because I walked around with a, you know, with, with a rucksack with a, with a motorhead patch on the back and, and tried to, and looked like my mum had cut my hair with a, you know, with one eye closed with a pair of, you know, with a blunt knife and a bowl. So I'm hardly going to look like, you know, I'm hardly kind of rocking the Johnny Depp look at that point. Not that I'm saying I'm now, but you get my point. Um, and I decided that I was going to get my hair cut and I decided I was going to get a wedge and a wedge is kind of like it's sort of short on one side and long on the other a bit of a kind of Paul where the star council look but I, I wanted to look like one of the beautiful neuromantic guys that girls love and um, I didn't tell my mum and I went to a hairdresser's in Cambridge and just said to this guy can I get a wedge and he literally just cut my hair like it was it was like when you move into a house and they haven't done the garden for three years and then you suddenly go kum, kum, and these mm. chunks came off and um he did it and I was I suddenly looked like a completely different person and I this is and my mum will verify this I was stood in the bus queue to go from Cambridge back to my mum and dad's and took back to home and my mum walked past me <laughs> and walked back again <laughs> And she's like, oh my God, what have you done? Because she was so happy that suddenly... Oh, no, it was a beautiful moment. She was just so pleased that suddenly her son looked presentable. And it was, she walked past me and then hurriedly went, oh, I got it, it's you. You know, it's her own son. She's only, you know, she's only, only maybe 13 or 14 years. And then I walked into school the next day, I think the following two days later, and he was like walking into my new school. It's like... Oh, suddenly all these girls were like oh my gosh you look god I haven't noticed you before and I'm like you know so um, there was a moment there when I then changed I mean I still wore all the rock t-shirts but then I suppose that's when my fashion thing came and I started like because all I'd done is, is worn jeans and trainers and whatever rock t-shirt I had or bought from a gig mm. or bought from you know one of the stores in Cambridge so that's all I did in fact my mum and dad uh, my mum uh, again, we'll verify this. She used to hang all my rock t-shirts out on the line inside out. Because 
Because she figured that they were so graphic and ugly. I mean, you've got an Iron Maiden cover in like 1982. You know, true. you know, they weren't no, particularly, yeah, you know, yeah. pleasant things to look that's at. True, yeah. And the motorhead crest is amazing, but it's not the kind of thing that mum would. Have. So my mum used to hang out like what my my t-shirts inside out, which was great because what she didn't realise that we know is that she was actually pre- preserving them, because yeah, obviously yeah, it was kind of like the sun did invade them. So. Uh, you know, paradoxically, it kind of extended the life of them. Um, but I, I, and that's when I started. I think that was when I got my hair cut. It was something like I started then to listen to different music because I, I suppose I turned into a different person. Yeah. And then I started just liking music. Yes. You know, it didn't become that it was I. You know, I'm a vegan, so I don't eat meat. It was like I'd eat everything. I consume yes. anything. It was like that sounds good. And I had a lot of time to make up for because I think a lot of people had made that decision a couple of years before me. Um, I mean, some haven't still, still, are still doing that today, you know, but in terms of kind of getting an eye, an ear for music, I then started liking tons of stuff. Yeah. Just thinking about the, um, the new romantic stuff. So, so discovering it is one thing, but can you, cause it is so very different and maybe that's all it is. Mm. Was there anything in the sound? What was it that, that drew you to it? To <clears throat> I think possibly that it was so, um, I suppose a lot of it was so beautiful in its construction and so intense in the way it had been put together. I mean, this is a period where, like, studio conceptions were really big. And synthesizers, in terms of that new romantic thing, were like something, you know, you press a button and go, wah, you couldn't do that before. Mm. So I suppose it was new sounds. And I think, and not taking anything away from heavy rock, heavy metal, because it's still my my go-to kind of genre, it, it, it is, it is a, a similar beast in terms of the way it's put up. It's sped up, it's slowed down, it's double drummed, it's finger tap guitars, whatever it be. But it is of a certain sound. Mm-hmm. And then when you start hearing kind of like Mick Khan bass, well, the way Mick Khan played the bass, really a fret of bass and he's incredible. And then the kind of synths and the keyboards and stuff, it wasn't sounds I'd heard because a bass guitarist in a rock band isn't, isn't the first, you know, I don't know any bass guitarist in rock bands other than probably Geddy Lee from Rush that you go, oh my God, what an incredible bassist that rock sure. band has. There's very few of them. I, I, Where, I like to stick up for the bassist. That's, that's, yeah, that's my but my point is, is that it was, uh, then that sort of became a sort of, you know, his sound in Japan was probably the sound. I mean, David Sylvian wasn't the greatest of singers. He was very inf- influenced by, certainly by Brian Ferry. Um, and he was very kind of like, you know, he sang was very super cool. Um, I always imagine him going home and him being from Bradford and go, bloody great gig that, you know, I really enjoyed it. And he'd have this amazing, but he'd gone this incredible sultry voice when he was on mic, a bit like David Coverdale, who pretends to be from, you know, a, a beautiful part of Sussex and he's from Redcar in Newcastle and completely changed his accent. But I kind of think the way that, 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 that Mick Khan played the bass, it kind of, it was an instrument I'd never listened to because it wasn't at the, it wasn't, it wasn't what you concentrated on when you listened to, oh, Lemmy, obviously, I'm just thinking another bassist, but it wasn't really kind of where you focused on listening to a rock record. It was about the vocals and the guitar yeah, solo mostly. Nice. So I think it was just something different. I was like, Jesus, you know, you listen to the bass solo in like Visions of China uh, and it's all over the place. I mean, he plays a fretless bass, so it, it's it's like um, all over the place. It's, it, and you're like, how's he doing it? It took me a while to realise it was a bass because it sounded like a synth that had been, you know, the, where the, the, the pitch had been mixed on it. But it's this guy playing, this Cypriot guy playing bass on this sound that you'd never heard. So I think that kind of opened my ears that it wasn't all about four and four and blistering guitar solos and like screams and yelps and stuff like that. Um, 
and I suppose that was the moment where I started going, okay, it's okay to like any music. Brilliant. Yeah. And what, what came after that? So what? So there's <coughs> we've we've covered heavy rock. We've covered yeah. New romantic. Jesus. But I know I know for a fact that you listen to considerably more than that. Yeah. So this so we're thinking. I mean, we don't need to go sequentially. Mm. We can jump around all over the place and what have you. But we're all talking now. What, like 15, 16, 17. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, up to about sort of twenty, I suppose it was. It was. Um, I mean, I left school when I was 15, and that was 1984, and that was obviously the Van Halen album that I, that I played to death. Um, I had a cassette of it on my Walkman, and I remember talking to somebody that got the bus with me back in when I was working in Cambridge, and she said the whole bus could hear like everything you were playing, because it was on full, Absolutely. and everyone knew exactly what you were playing. It was bloody annoying when you think about it, because... Walkmans those times what it sounded like bees were flying they around. Did. They weren't there was no you yeah. know, it wasn't like now you could sit somebody on the tube and you might hear a little tss, tss, yeah. tss from a headphone. But so I suppose that was up and then I suppose up to about uh I actually got a girlfriend when I was about eighteen, seventeen, eighteen, a girl called Amanda Vince. Um and she was from Glasgow and very cool. And she introduced me to Bowie and Simple Minds and Talking Heads and bands that I'd never been aware of. So that's a real treasure trove. Big moment. Yeah, I remember, I remember playing, I don't remember what album it was, but Bowie for the first time, and I was like, whoa, what is this? Again, a different sound, um, and each Bowie album's different. And it was, you know, even at that point, there was a huge catalogue of records you can get involved in. So I think that was a big moment. She took me to see... Uh, Stop Making Sense the film by uh, Talking Heads and everyone got up after the first track and danced in the cinema in the aisles and, and it was like amazing who is this guy and Dave Bourne walks on in a suit that's about nine times too big for him with a, with a cassette recorder and presses a beat and starts playing Psycho Killer just on him and if you haven't seen the film basically he walks on and then through each, with, with a couple of tracks another member of the band arrives so Tina Weymouth will come on bass for two a couple of tracks and and it extends and it gets to the end where they've got a whole band and a choir and like a kind of dancing girls it's an amazing film and a great soundtrack so that was Talking Heads were a band that I'd never heard of um, but suddenly was like this is amazing you know Stop mm. Making Sense was, was, a, was an incredible record um, another thing a really funny moment I remember it's just before, the, before I moved out probably my mum and dad um, so my the landscape of my parents' house is that my bedroom was right next to the bathroom. And my mum used to get up, and I used to get up for work, and I used to put a record on and wait for her to get out of the bathroom before I go in. And I put on a Psycho Killer, Stop Making Sense, Psycho Killer Talking Heads, which you have to appreciate is a really underground record, a really odd record. Mm. It's called Psycho Killer. It doesn't get much radio, figure. And, um, you know, if you don't know the record, it's like, uh, uh, um, there's a bit in it where Dave Byrne goes, oh, 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 hi, 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 and then goes into the chorus, it goes into the verses. And I've got this thing on, and I'll never forget it. I've got it on, and as that bit comes in, my mum sings that part while in the bathroom, and I'm like, mum, how do you know about talking heads? Because you play it every morning. And it was, it was mental, to, well, mental is a bad word, but it was crazy to hear your mum who you consider to be quite a conservative person, singing along to a Talking Heads record. She has no idea what it's about, with respect. She has no idea it's about a psycho killer. But just how music, how people can consume music without even knowing 
what it's about. Yeah. And it was also a buzz to hear my mum sing Psycho Killer by Talking Heads. Well, then you go one of two ways, can't you? You're like, oh, yeah. I've just ruined yeah. it. No, for me, it was like, <laughs> awesome. That's that you I'm educated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so unfair. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Kevin and Perry. Um, but, you know, it was like, wow, okay, cool. So, it's, you know, I'm like, okay, I've educated someone. In, not in an arrogant way, yes. but like in someone who, Guy Downs played in the ACDC, then I then gone and played Psycho Killer to my mum and dad, and like, my mum knows the, a bit of it. So that was quite a moment. And then I suppose it was your 20s. I just started listening. No, no, when would that be? So that would have been right, 87. Uh, can't remember. I mean, all sorts of bands. I got into, I mean, one of the bands that, God, this is. So 80, 86, 87, I got my first ever CD player because CDs had just come out. And um, the first CD I think I ever got was Jean Michel Jarre live. Because I got really into him. Again, I, I was dating a girl, her best friend's boyfriend. We used to go around his, his, his bedroom, just hang out. And he used to play Jean-Michel Jarre. Again, never heard anything like it. And it was all these keyboards you know, a million miles away from, I don't know, Van Halen. Um, and I got really into him. And um, I got one of his CDs. That I think I'm pretty sure I got Zero Per... No, Zuluk? Oh. I think the album is. I've got it. Um probably the first CD I ever got and then Terence Strand Darby's album came out and um, again living in Cambridge it come out this is when you had to wait for CDs to be available in shops kids it wasn't a case of like you know you could stream something you know as soon as it's out of the studio because it's leaked like a Kanye record mm. um, and I tried to get this album in Cambridge and a couple of record shops and they'd all sold out so my dad was living was working in London and he went into three HMVs and find me a copy and oh, brought it back. Nice. And it's funny you should talk about this because it came up on my iPod shuffle the other day and it's like, um, Sign of the Times came out and, mm-hmm. and I thought Naz was in the house, Naz my girlfriend. And I said, that this is 31, rec- 31 years old. Mm-hmm. And it still sounds incredible. Yes. I mean, it, what an amazing record. And I think I then got into here, into stuff like that, which again was a million miles away from the stuff I've been listening to maybe five years before. Um, and then I guess that will take me to 20, 21, 22. And then I started, then I got a job at a record company, which was A&M Records. And, um, and I was working for a, 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 working in a clothes shop and I saw a, an advert in the Cambridge Evening News for A&M Records and it said, you know, we're seeking young, dynamic, and I can't remember the third thing was, to join our team. And I was like, oh my God, a record company. I was like, this is like amazing. So... I spoke to my dad and we, we, we put a CV together, which was entirely fictitious because it was all bullshit. But if I'd have put what I actually did, uh, had in terms of complications, that are like, I'm amazed he haven't managed to put an envelope together, let alone you know, <laughs> get a job. Um, and uh, I went into the interview and they were interviewing at a hotel in Cambridge, literally in five minute gaps. They were getting, they're getting loads of people and just seeing grip and grin. And, and before the guy, I was sat outside and the guy that came out before I was going to go in for the interview was, was a guy called Marcus, who was the manager of our price in Cambridge. I knew this because I was in there every week. And I went, ah, he's going to get it. You know, so he works in a record. And I was super relaxed. And I went in and I went, yeah, I'm Eden. I'm 20, whatever. I was 21 or 20, maybe 22. And I'm really into my music and blah, blah, blah. And I just talked to him five minutes or 10 minutes. And I'm like, great, cool. Thanks very much. And I came back and went, oh, well, that was interesting. But... You know, I think Mark is going to do it. And I, I kind of dispelled the idea I was going to get the job. About a week later, two weeks later, <clears throat> I got a letter. And I opened it, and it was from A&M Records. You know, we just come back for a second interview. And I was like, shit, 
all on A&M had headed paper and stuff like that. And I How knew... How many times did you read that, though? Oh, I, well, I, not only that, but it was I read it about four or five times, but I knew all the bands that I owned on vinyl that were on A&M, because I, I, I knew who were on A&M. So um, I went in, and it was a long interview. It was an hour and a half. And we just talked about music. And it was for sales reps' job. And all I did was talk about music, like we're doing now, you know. And they just sat there and kind of listened to me. They didn't really have much choice when I get going. And I was just talking about, you know, B-sides that I really liked or kind of producers because I'd, I'd really got into music. And, you know, my education, I didn't, I really didn't like school. There was nothing that excited me. But my education was actually, Lee was when I left school and I got home and started listening to records and studying the artwork and studying the album and the credits and who produced it and where it was recorded and where it was mastered. And these people who got thank yous, who are these? How do you get a thank you on a record? Yes. You know, it was a big thing. Yes. And that was my education. So when I walked into this second interview, I just talked about music. And I'll always remember, I get quite emotional when I say, when I say this because it, it was a real moment. And it was September 1989. So I was 22, coming up to 22. I was 20, I was 21, coming up to 22, anyway. And we're talking about music, and I feel that these two guys, a guy called Paul Smith, not the Paul Smith, now Phil Millington, who worked at AM Records, were sat across the other side of this desk, and they had one of those big, chunky mobile phones. I'd never seen one, but the brick, with yeah. the, you know, it's like a huge thing with an aerial, rubber aerial. And I'm like, and, we're, and I feel they're leading up to something, and, he's, and Phil Millington, no, Paul Smith's bloody mobile goes, and he's went, I've got to get this. And he went, would you like to go outside? And I went, okay, so I went outside, I'm going, getting orange juice, calm down. Right, I, I, you know, I don't know, what do you think? You know, I'm talking to myself. And they said, oh, come back in. Sat down and they went, okay, Eden, <clears throat> um, do you want to tell us now? Or do you want to have time to think about it? Um, you know, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? And I, I went, in my head going, I think they're offering me the job, but they actually offered me the job. So don't be arrogant. Yes, and I uh, said, yeah, and I remember going, if you're offering me the job, this is where I get really emotional, it's bizarre. He said, if you're offering me the job, I'd love to accept. And Paul Smith got up, leant across the table, put his hand out and said, welcome to A&M Records. And it was life changing oh, because God. it changed my life. Yeah. It, it, I was suddenly like 21 going, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, I work for a record company. It was, it was the dream. So do you think, do you think there's a degree of, acceptance or um, not acceptance but kind of I'm getting emotional I understand the, I understand the feeling <clears throat> just to kind of you know not like I work for this this is what I deserve that's not the case no. at all because I don't think well, I can just speak from experience mm. you don't go in and go I know music yeah I am music yeah. it's fine but just going you know actually someone's recognised yeah. that I, I care about this. This is a thing that yeah, I absolutely. About, right? I think it was it was it was definitely that. It was definitely that. Kind of, you know, I'm kind of being recognised for uh, my love for something I love. Which is, if you love something, it's not an effort. You don't try to love things. If you just love things, so if you're then getting rewarded with a job for something you just love, it's not a job. Mm. It's just thing. It's just like it's an extension of what your love is. Um, but it was also that. Um, that, that, that my dad was, was a uh, Burton area manager 
and he got me the job at Burton's, which I, where I was working. So I was very, I'd been relying on him to get me a job. And I, like I said, my grades at school weren't great. So I left school, <laughs> I left school wanting to be a trainee hairdresser. That was my, you know, that was my thing. For like 25 pound a week or something like that, with like no money at all. Although it was 10 times what I was earning on the paper round, so it's still a profit. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, but, so I think it was all, also it was the first real moment that I got independence that I was like, I've done this on my own. Because everything I'd done at that point, which certainly could be, certainly in terms of my job at Burton's, was my, my, my dad's doing. He got me the Saturday job, you know, when I gave up the paper round. And, um, and then a full-time job available, it became available just after I left school. So I kind of got the full-time job and that was it. And it was cool, I enjoyed working there. And it was great, you know, I was, I was a kid, I was 15, you know. I mean, what do I know? I'm, I'm you know, suddenly in full-time employment. But it was the first time that I got independence and the first time that I could honestly say, hand on heart, I did that. And, um, and my dad was amazing actually, he was very proud. And he was very, I think he was glad that I was leaving Burton's because it was kind of, it, it was a store that unfortunately then went, you know, kind of through the pan or down the pan. Um, and he left a couple of years later and um but it was also that he could see how much it meant that what i'd been doing for those years listening to music and consuming it and and, and like i say being able to spot a producer from one record to another now this is you know without over regular this is a 15 year old kid that can listen to a record went i think that's a producer so and so and they go jesus it is you know it's, my, my ears were being tuned um but it, it was definitely independent things like i've done something so i've achieved something starting? mental i went up to liverpool I had a funny, very funny story, actually. Um, I went up to Liverpool to see Phil Millington, who was my boss, and he lived in Liverpool, and he took me around the shops, and he said, okay, what you need to do is, he said, you need to get on with everyone. Uh, You need to to give them product, and um, you need to, every week, and I've done an interview about this on BBC Two, so I'm not blowing anything. Um, Every week, we would have a priority of a new record to work, and... When you when when you go to Sainsbury's and they scan something across the uh, across the till, it registers that. Okay, so at that time, Gallup ran the charts and they had their information by those barcodes on the back of records. Now I'm not you know, killing anyone's kind of idea of how the industry worked, but not every barcode that was scanned was a real sale. It was a favour, and you go into, I don't know, Left Leg Your Pineapple in Loughborough, which is one of my branches, one of my shops when I was in AM ago. You know, whoever it was, I can't remember the guy's name, but I remember the shop going, you know, James, what, what are you? So I'm getting a lot of pressure on this Delamitri record. Really? Yeah, is it a priority? Give me it here. And he'd run it through, go, then you beep, you'd hear it. And it was like, it was kind of like scoring a goal. It was like, oh, great, I've got another one. <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, you do all these kind of, and, and you get on with people. And of course, the great thing was, I was a 21 year old kid going round with the biggest smile on my face, with this incredible energy going, I've got the best job in the world. I've got an F Red Sierra Ross. <laughs> you know, look at me. You know, who said, you know, they laughed at school. Now yeah, look at me now. Yeah, exactly. And we had kind of all these records in the back of my car. And, um, but I was so happy meeting all these people and just talking about music. I'm getting paid to talk about music. And that's what you need to, that, that what we need to understand it. I mean, you know, and it was just fun. And, um, quickly, and I started in September, about two months later, and I'd never done this job before, I walked into a store in um, Leicester, 
and uh, one of my stores and these two guys sidled up to me uh, and their name was Roger Smith and um, John Walsh and they ran the sales team at EMI Records and they said you're Eden aren't you and I went yeah what have I done and they were like John and Roger from EMI you've got time for a coffee I was like yeah okay and um, it turns out that they were looking to hire somebody in the EMI Records and they'd asked a number of the stores in their area that I called on who was a good rep and they all said you've got to meet this lunatic Eden <laughs> he's who is it he's this kid he's gonna kid he's 21 from Cambridge he just talks about music he just fucking loves it you know and they're like wow is he good yeah he's good the girls like him the guys are you know it's kind of like he's a he's a good rep you know everything you want so they turned me for a cup of coffee and they said we're extending EMI records would you um would you like to come work for us? I was like, EMI, Jesus. And Eden, we can take your salary from £9,000 a year to twelve. I was like, three grand more, wow. And it was a big moment. And I was living with my mum and dad. And, um, and I accepted. And funnily, it's a really kind of funny story. I'm a, I was then a bit of a reckless driver. I'm not now. But I used to just drive it, and you know, it was either zero or you know, hundred and ten. It was there was no middle ground. It's similar to how I've lived my life. And I crashed a car, one of A and M's records. I, I I I jumped a light coming back from London from a meeting, and hit the back of the car in front of me and took all my, my lights out. And the police came along and they gave me, actually gave me plastic bags to put over my headlights so I could right. get home. So I called the office the next day, A and M. And the worst thing you can do if you're a sales rep is crash the car because the people that run the car department are, the, they're like the devil. They're like, you don't want to upset them. It's like, oh my God, no. And Why is that? Because it's their, they, you know, they, they supply these cars. They're probably on a huge bonus in terms of how much, how many of them aren't crashed and how many of them to keep in one piece. You know, everything, you know, if they give you a car, it's worth 10 grand. So that's 10,000 pounds. If you can just do that that's great but if you crash it three times we've got to find another three four grand which comes out of my budget which comes out of my bonus anyway so i phoned the office from the store and said um i'm really sorry but uh, uh, paul the guy getting the job i crashed my car he said oh eden what have you done and i've been, only been there about two months and they went okay and they gave me a real rollicking down the phone and he went okay he said come down tomorrow we'll get you a new one and um he said but whatever you do don't do it again so I got on the car that, that the rescue company had loaned me <coughs> uh, from crashing the car the night before. Went round the corner and crashed that. <laughs> Just literally minutes, put the phone down and said to my boss, Paul, no, I won't crash any more cars. Got the car, round the corner, bang. So I, <laughs> so I drove down to the office and to A&M Records, which is in Kings Road, and went in there and no one knew me because I'd only just started. You know, I didn't, they didn't even know my name. They didn't know I existed. Or some of this kid, you know, Eden Blackman, apparently as a rep, yeah, come in. So I went and got a bollocking from Paul and then went uh, to well, see. So what does that, so I'm interested, I mean, we're way off uh, finding out what, what it is about music, but I'm, 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 I'm in now. I'm completely right. committed. Well, to you just, How do you go from getting a bollocking about crashing the car and then where do you go in the bollocking scales? Right, so, so wait, so it gets better. So I get a bollocking for crashing this car. And um, that's the first one. And uh, they went, Eden, you know, you've got, you've got to drive careful, blah, 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 and all these kind of like conversations. And I'm shitting myself because I know what I've got to say. And he went, right, we've got to go and see so-and-so from the carpool now. And I, and I honestly thought I was going to meet like the devil. 
and I walked in and he gave me the big full on like loaded like you are a so and so and he went and he went absolutely roasting me and I went okay I've got I'm so really sorry John um, but I crashed the other car last night and he went berserk and Paul looked at me and went have you got anything else you want to tell us Wally I said yeah I'm leaving I've got a job for me am I and honestly they were like who the fuck are you <laughs> So my name was Mud. Oh my I mean, they all thought it was hilarious. They told me later they were like, "We'd never had one walk in yeah. and go crash two cars in and then notice and get a, you know a thirty-three percent pay increase." And just go, "I'm really sorry." Very naively and very they could tell I was worried, but yeah. they, you know, it was all the drama of putting it on me that I crashed cars. It was you know smoking mirrors, hoping they could frighten me not to do it again. And um, and then I would start work for EMI, and 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 I was a sales rep for like two years around the kind of whole, um, well, kind of the Jesus Jones and EMF and all those kind of bands that I got into really heavily, which was a, mo- a sort of mix between rock and dance, I suppose you'd call mm. it. Um, and then uh, John Walsh, who I spoke about, um, he um, he said very early on that I'm a plugger. I'm like, what, even you're a radio plugger? I'm like, what's a radio plugger? And he went, no, you just go down to Radio 1, hang out, do a lot of lunches and take a lot of people out. And I'm like, sounds amazing, where do I start? He said, problem is, is that the, the EMI staff at the moment aren't going anywhere. He said, so if you don't mind, I'm going to suggest you to other labels. And I'm like, do you want rid of me? And I went, no. He said, you are just wasted as a sales rep. Right. You're doing like 1,300 miles a week. You're nearly killing yourself. Yeah. You, the, the stores love you. He said, but you can't do that for the rest of life. It's not a career. Um, and he was right, because that job doesn't exist anymore. And pluggers still do, you know. So... He um, he uh, he spoke to a guy called Tony uh, um, Tracy Bennett who ran London Records, and they had a regional radio job going. Anyway, we then had a new MD at EMI, a guy called uh, Jean Francois Sissidon. He was French, if you case you haven't guessed it, and everyone used to call him JF. And um, he came in from France because the old MD got fired, walked into the promotions department, and he looked at everyone, went no, and fired them all. Because he was just like, no, nah, I want sexy, I want young, I want exciting. So he went up to John and said, um, I've just fired the, I want to continue to do the, the accent. Um, uh, John, I, I've just fired a, my national radio plug. Do you know any good ones? He goes, we've got a great one, Eden Blackman. Who's he? He's a sales rep for us. Great, get him in. Um, he's got an interview at London Records tomorrow. What? How do you know that? Well, I suggested that he should do it. What? Get him in. So I've gone from having no interviews to two. And I went to London Records and I had an interview there and I came to EMI and I met JF, who was a complete lunatic and I loved him. Um, and he said, Eden, baby. Every time he saw me, Eden, baby. If I saw him now, Eden, baby. Um, what are you doing? I heard good things about you. And I'm like, I just started talking about music and he was like, you know, very, very gregarious guy. And we just got on. And he said, I, he offered me the job. And I got a job as uh, for EMI Records as National Plugger. So I went straight from kind of sales rep to national plugger, which is a big move because you normally do regional, just got to learn, yeah, sure. you know, and kind of you know talking to Skip FM and why bother radio about why they're not playing a John Cicada record. I was straight in there with like, right, new Kate Bush album exclusive, and you're like, fuck, and um, and it was fun, it was great. I managed to do a lot. Of, I met a lot of people. I went round to Dave Gilmore's house and sat with him, and he showed me around his house because he was an amazing guy. I had breakfast with Kate Bush. I met Jimmy Page, which was just this moment where I just shook Jimmy Page's hand and my, I couldn't hear anything. He could have been calling me anything. And I'm in my head going, 
I'm shaking the hand of Jimmy Page. I'm shaking the hand of Jimmy Page. <laughs> it's amazing. And and had some great fun. And then left EMI, um, took a couple, about a year out, and then set up my first prom- independent promotion company, which was um, which is where I met you. Yeah. Um, it started off called, could be called Euro Solution, which is a terrible name. And then I decided to change it into called, called Size 9 because it was a big record around, around the time by Josh Wink called Size 9. And it was also, also just my shoe size. And then that's, you know, that's kind of when my independent career took out. Yeah. And that was about four years. And, and we got into doing dance music. So, so this was, I, I'm interested in this as well because <clears throat> I guess the, um, the ability, no, not the ability, but the, um, the exposure to more electronic sounds mm. was always there. Yeah. So, so, so you know, post, post hard rock, mm. new romantic synths, mm. Talking Heads, I mean, you know, all of that kind of stuff mm. gives you a, a basis. Jean-Michel Jarre is, you know, course, 100%, you know, nothing else. Yes. Yeah. So the so by that time, you're you're switched on to pretty much everything. Mm. And, and what about dance music then? So you had been there for, obviously, its inception. Yeah, I mean, I, dance music, I'll be honest with you, dance music was probably one of my least favourite uh, genres of music because I, I was all about going to see bands and then putting a guitar and a drum kit and a bass and whatever and actually playing it and I always felt that dance music was just some people in you know studios pressing buttons that had already been preloaded I didn't really see it and I didn't really go to clubs because it wasn't my thing I, when I was in, in London I'd go to bars and all sorts of places that probably don't exist and shouldn't exist right now um, but I had a good time but it simply came it literally just came about where um, we were handed, we being Euro Solutions, aka Size Nine, were handed a label deal from EMI called Encore Records, and it was terrible. It was all these awful European records that you know you'd add an Aqua record, you get one a year, and they, they add about one a day. You know, how about this one evening? And they're like, kill me. Um, and I really wasn't sure even if I wanted to be a plugger at that point. I was really having a kind of not a midlife crisis because I was like thirty. What was I then? I don't know. 30-something. Um, not 28. But I was certainly having a light, oh, is this for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, one record that came in was an artist by an artist called Duke, and it was called So In Love With You. And I heard it and instantly fell in love with it. I don't know what it was about it. It was like... It's a good record. Yeah, it was like... It was just a great record. This, this guy from Newcastle super had this kind of really high falsetto voice and super good you should check it out and google it Duke so I know you full intention mix and I suddenly thought I can get this on the radio and I absolutely didn't let go I went to Radio 1 and Catherine Kiss and went this is just an amazing record and we got it on the A-list at all three stations and we got them a few more but I've forgotten and I suddenly went oh, I can do this and it was it wasn't a hit because EMI obviously didn't spend any money on it because it was wasn't a priority for them. I think it went like seventy something, but I thought it was a fantastic record. But because we got that one dance record away, we suddenly then got calls from other labels who had dance records. So it wasn't. I'd love to say it's calculated. I'd love to say it's kind of. I saw that this arc was going to happen with the Ibiza scene or Radio One work playing dance records. It was utter fluke. It was simply that it could have been a a drum and bass record or, or a techno record or a, a hip hop record or any or a rock and roll record it was just that I got that one on the playlist and when, you're, when you've got a, a record that a new artist that goes on Radio 1 people want to know who worked it because they don't know anything about the artist so it must, they must say a lot about the plugger mm. 
that they do know now about the artist. And we got, you know, phone rang, I've got this dance record, I've got this dance record. I'm like, yeah, we'll do them, you know. Cut to four years later, I've got 56 dance labels that I work for. Three of them were on Palapa. That's how, uh, how kind of concentrated the dance scene was because everyone wanted a dance label. And you know, I had Credence, I had Cream, Prolifica, there were a couple of other labels on, you know, there was, you know, big, you know, that was just on EMI. And we got to a stage where we were doing tons and tons of dance records. But the problem with them, as, as good as they were, the problem was that there was no longevity to them because you think of how many one-off dance records there are. The problem with that is, is that there's no second single, there's no album, there's no press, there's no tour. There was no longevity. Unless you're Norman Cook or the Chemical Brothers or those, you know, you, you have a one-hit wonder like Duke. Um, although that was a two-hit wonder because I got it playlisted twice at Radio 1 and twice at Cafe and Kids because we got it re-released and finally was a hit. Um, but it was, it was, you know, so you'd work your arse off for eight, nine, ten weeks and that'll be it. And I wanted more longevity. Um, and when I left Size 9 to set up Ish Media, which is my company now and it's mm, 18 in November, I was the plugger that every radio well, every director of radio or, or every promotions guy was like, you're mental. Because I was going in going, I want to go to gigs. I want to go to the Dublin Castle on a Tuesday evening to see this band because I want longevity. And most people didn't want to do that. You know, going to the bloody gig now is like, ugh, really? But I was like, I am, you know, I wanted to go to gigs. I wanted to find bands. I wanted to build careers. I wanted to want album campaigns, not single campaigns. Um, and that's kind of where, that's what I did with Ish. And then... You know, a lot of my old labels came calling and I did selected dance labels. I did the ministry for four years, which was which was really successful, but not enjoyable because it's just not a particularly fun place to be or wasn't at the time. Um, but we just then had loads of hit records with them and, and we did really good stuff. I mean, we, you know, I mentioned earlier when we were talking off mic about City Rockers, where a Charlie that works for me is, I found Charlie there. Um, a very cool label to be involved in around this sort of Euro clash thing with the sort of Felix the Housecat and Tiger and Eye Monster and, and I'm trying to think of other things, but you know, the kind of Fisher Spoon and all those kind of things that were coming along. Very exciting. Not my world at all, Ross, mm. but just something that I think maybe what where it worked was, was that because I had no mm, history or knowledge really about dance records, I would just listen to them with my radio ears and go, yeah, that'll work on radio, and that wouldn't. And that, and I, yeah, I find that, that's interesting because obviously everything you were just saying there was looking at it very much from a professional perspective. Mm. So did you not really have any kind of affinity for dance music from a personal perspective? No. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's absolutely cool. I think, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, and I think the first dance record that I remember buying was um, uh, Frankie Knuckles, Your Love on the original Future Tracks pressing, which I've still got next door. Um, and that was about the first thing I remember. And I remember hearing that in a shop in Nottingham when I was a sales rep and then playing it. And me thinking, God, it's super gay, but it's amazing. I, this is like, and, and I didn't own anything like that. And there was that track, oh, you know, they call it Acid. I remember buying that and, bit, and, 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 bits, and, and bits of, bits of track, bits of music, but nothing, I didn't have a dance. I didn't have a, a, an amount of dance records in my record collection or CD collection, but it was simply that, well, I think nobody else was doing it either because they didn't see the longevity. Sure. They probably didn't think that 20 years later, as we are now, dance, dance would be as big as it was. You know, this was the time that Pete Tong probably just started a show at Radio 1. 
you know, this wasn't, you didn't have Friday Night Kiss and Saturday Night Kiss at the yeah. station at shows. You didn't have Danny Howard and Annie Mack and Dan Santhams and, you know, you had a few shows. Um, and I had some fun. You know, my favourite, probably the, the, the most successful record I ever, financially and business that I did, was Run DMC versus Jason Evans. I remember the day. So, this is, I remember that day. I yeah. remember that day in the office. Mm. And you sat at your desk. I can picture it. I can literally picture it. This is going to sound weird, and obviously not necessarily how I expected the podcast to turn out, but this is so true. I remember it. Came in one day, and you sat there with the biggest smile on your face, <laughs> with a 10-inch. Yeah. So you remember it came in two versions? You've got yeah. the 12-inch yeah. version, you've got the 10-inch version, yeah. which had the picture Steve. And you sat there, and you go, I've got it. And I didn't know what you meant. Yeah. And, and you just said, I said, I've got it. Yeah. And, I mean, history bears out yeah. just how big that was. Yeah. But you knew. Yeah, it was, it was simply that, um, and I'll give you full credit, Danny Rampling was playing it on a Saturday night. And again, this is pre-internet, pre-Spotify, like all of this stuff. So I found out what the record was called. And I found a copy in Chicago and bought it. Phoned up a shop in Chicago. And they had one. And I got them to send it over. And I remember a size nine. We had a big team. And you know what? The incredible part about everyone that, that worked with me and for me at size nine is we're all still doing it. You know, we, we could have, for, for some different reasons, that company could have been enormous. But unfortunately, the director's had other opinions of how things should go but but we're all still doing what we do we're all successful in our fields which is i think is testament to the, the individuals that we we hired or, or, or that we had and the team we built but i remember on a, on a, i think it was a, a friday i used to over sit down and we used to all sit down in my office and, and sort of say okay what have we been sent and somebody put a cassette on and somebody put a bit of you know a vinyl on or or, or you know whatever and I go, what do we think about that? No, it's shit. No, it's good. Okay, Charlie, who's, who's the amazing regional girl that's still working in regional, would, you know, okay, they phoned me, I'll call them. Or Mark Murphy, who's the national plug along with me. Okay, yeah, they called me, I'll phone them. We used to get tons of work. And I played Run DMC. I said, I said, I've got this thing from Chicago. I think it's great. It's Run DMC, Run, DM, Run DMC versus Jason Nevis. Put it on, and literally everyone laughed at me. And I'm not, I, I absolutely truthful. They just looked at me and went, he's gone. He's, he's finally gone. <laughs> You know, mark this moment. This is when Eden absolutely lost his lost the marbles. And I went, no, you don't see it. And I went, no, I'm not. okay. I'll tell you what, I'm going to do it myself. And I, you know, kind of fancy doing it. And like we say, you know, it, it was it was really easy to deal deal to do because Profile Records never hired a plugger. So I went and went. This Jason never got. We're going to do it. Don't know. We should release it. Really? Yeah. Why? It's massive. Okay. How do we make it massive? You hire me, and I'll get it on Radio One, and I'll get it on TV, and I like, okay, how much you charge this? Okay, and there's bonuses, this. And um, all right, cool, we'll do it. A guy called John, I don't remember his name. He got a brand new Mercedes out of it. He was very happy. That's the biggest record. Yeah, and it was it was the third best selling single that year. It was number one for six weeks. It it stopped the Spice Girls' run of number one singles, ironically with a single called "Stop," which I thought was hilarious. Um, and I tell this story quite a bit against the demise of music TV. I had a bonus system that every time the, sh the video was shown on TV, I would get a bonus. So if it was shown on, you know, I don't know, Big Breakfast or, or the chart show, I'd get, I think it's 250 quid a show in. Not bad work when you haven't got to do anything. Of course, the great thing about then was there was about six or seven TV shows that played music videos, including Top of the Pops. And when you were number one, the Big Breakfast would always say, and this week's number one is, bang. So you go, bonus. And then it would be repeated, and chart show would play it, and then repeated. Top of the pots would play it, it'd be pinned. On a Monday morning for six weeks, I got up. Before we got up, I'm like, I've made two and a half grand, right. just off bonuses. 
and it, it was just a lovely bit of business because it, I got I doubled my salary I, I ended up getting insisting I got half um, the, um, half the company and, the, and I asked them to get me convertible Audi which I got just through this one record because it's like oh, I'm off because I got a lot my phone then really rang it was ringing in terms of going to work for company but I was quite happy but I was like hang on you know your worth and again it's that independent moment where you're like oh hang on I can you know because you don't, you don't really think you're any good at well, I never really thought I was particularly good at anything until somebody says hang on have a look at this what you've done or appreciates it so that was a big moment and it was it always it will always be uh, it will probably be the biggest record I've ever made I think it was 1.6 million sales I've got the discs somewhere in the house but it was and it was just kind of like yeah and when you do those records then your phone rings um, so it was a good moment yeah but I had no I mean I had the one DMC I bought Raising Hell when it came out which was probably 86 87 so I was listening to hip hop then but I didn't really know the legacy of the record I didn't know who Jason Nevins was I mean I got paid more than Jason Nevins right? Jason Nevins told me I did an interview with him once and um, he got five grand for that remix. I remember, yeah, I remember reading stories about that time as well. It was obviously the biggest thing. He got his flat fee as yeah. a remixer, and, and that was it. Yeah. And I mean, that being said, I mean, this isn't to excuse anything and what have you. No one knows that could have been a really good deal. He's gone, yeah, brilliant, got that. Yeah, obviously he got loads of remixes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is good yeah. because guess what? If you if you've been instrumental in something that's that big, yeah, then it's it's lovely to continue to be able to make a living mm. afterwards. So yeah, totally. I mean, he did, he did okay. I mean, he's still doing remixes now, you know, 20 years after the record. So he's, he's done okay. And But it, it, I remember him saying how much he earned, and I felt terrible because I'd, I'd, I'd earned that just getting the record before I'd even done anything. But he's done well. We've all, everyone's happy. You know, nobody came out of that. Run DMC have had a huge resurgence since that record. I saw the other day they're playing they're playing this year, and you're like, wow, you know, they wouldn't have been doing that if that Run DMC, if, if that Jason Evans record, you know, it's a huge different audience. So it was, it was fun. It was, it was good, and it was, it was enjoyable. And you, you got, to, and I did two, two and a half days of promo with him, mm. and that was just crazy. And Jam Master Jay tried to teach me to DJ, and he, <laughs> he failed because I can't. <laughs> what, what about hip hop? How, what's your? I like it. I mean, I, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit like a lot of things in my life. I don't have a great knowledge about it. I mean, I understand. I mean, I'm interested. I watch all, watch all the kind of films, read a lot of the, 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 the biographies because most of them sadly have, have been, you know. I've been shot, um, but you know I do love I do love hip hop. I'm not a huge hip hop head. Um, it's something that I'll go go into. I suppose Public Enemy would probably be my favourite hip hop act, just because I think I, I like the way they challenged. But I also find I felt that they were more of a, you know, dare I say it, they're more of a kind of a rockier band than than maybe LL Cool J or yep. I've never understand Tupac. I I don't get it, and I know I'm on my own there. No, not really. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure perhaps to be into things that you're not. Mm. Not you personally, but one isn't. And I don't see that as a problem. For, for me, I never really, Tupac never really landed with me. No. But then loads of hip-hop never really landed with me as, as well. I understand that completely. I think I think that's fine. I think maybe some people do get too tribalistic about mm. those kind of things, about, well, you know, you, you clearly don't know what you're talking about if you don't like X. And it's yeah. like, well, no, not necessarily. Yeah. It's just that hasn't landed for me but I love yeah. that yeah exactly I mean I see kind of genres of music as I do art I don't have an understanding of art at all but I will go to the Tate and walk into a room and see uh, when I get had Rich's massive pieces and lose my mind over it and just stand there and go holy moly so every time there's a get had Richard exhibition I will go I will buy all the books his pieces are worth millions 
but I don't understand art, but I look at those and go, there's something in that that attracts me. I don't know what it is, it's whether it's the scale or what he does, but I can look at that and then I can go, I try, you know, I try to go to an art gallery as, as much as I can, just to, just to spend time and try and educate myself. But I'm, I'm a lost cause in terms of art, because I'm just like, I could do that. You know, those kind of like, when, there's one, when it's one picture and literally one half of it's painted black and one half painted white, I'm like, why is that worth a big gazillion pounds when the version I did wouldn't even sell for like 50p, even if I signed it and put Celebs Go Dating on it? You know, there would be no worth to it. And I suppose it's the same with hip hop. And I've never really understood the kind of, you know, the, the, you, can, you are the East Coast or West Coast. It kind of comes back to what I said earlier about, about clans. Mm. It's like there's nothing wrong with listening to a specials record and listening to yeah. a Twisted Sister record because they're just what you like. Yes. Um, do you think? Do you think so? Do you think with age, those those kind of tribalistic things, those clans, yeah. just fade away? Yeah, I think so because you realise that it's okay. You allow yourself the freedom to say it's okay. You can like what you like, yeah. and you know what? If your friends at school say they really like a record and you don't, you don't like it. You don't need to say, oh yeah, I really like it, just to keep in with them, yeah. because then you're in many ways less memorable yeah I, I mean I, I, I say that I'm not a novel thinker in this kind of respect so I'm basically sort of paraphrasing Scroobius Pitt really mm. when I say it but you don't have to like everything no right? and that doesn't mean that it's bad mm. so just not liking something doesn't automatically mean it's bad yeah and that's I think that's really important it's a kind of subtle distinction that we're so wrapped up to, so wrapped up in it at a younger age because mm. there's maybe a bit more kind of I need to be accepted or mm. I need this or something like that or identify with this and so that rubs up against the particular way of thinking but to go oh you know this this I like this I'm not so mm. sure about like, that's absolutely fine yeah I find the this is personally I find the concept of comparing things to each other mm. frivolous as well mm. and I've ruined countless albums for myself growing up Red Hot Chili Peppers is the best example right so when I was a kid Blood Sugar Sex Magic yeah. came out loved it yeah. and then they followed that up a couple of years later with One Hot Minute yeah. and I listened to Boy I was like yeah. here we go yeah. day one went down the board put it on I was like yeah. well this isn't Blood Sugar no, Sex Magic no 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 it isn't because that was yeah. fucking yeah. Blood Sugar totally. Sex Magic yeah, yeah. and One Hot Minute might have been really good mm. but immediately I listened to it I was like no yeah. that's rubbish compared to that yeah I think I hear what you're saying I mean the, the phrase that I use is somebody says do you like so and so is, is I, I will I'll be self-deprecating I go I don't get it so it kind of puts the onus on me that I don't understand it and doesn't challenge the form or the medium that I'm being asked yeah, if I like. Sure. So if somebody shows me an amazing picture by an artist, and I'll go, I don't get it. Yeah, sure. I'd rather them think I don't get it than the the, the, the picture is, is is questionable. But you know, it's 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 everything. It's so it's a choice. You know, as to whether you like, and it, it, some things you'll like, some things. You know, how many times have you said, God, I really don't want to like this record, but I do. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah, but that's got, I mean, for me personally, it's just gone away now. Yes. Like, I, I can listen to the worst record. I've mm. just said that I don't believe in best and worst and stuff like yeah. that. But I can listen to uh, popular music now, right? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's sound really old. I can listen to popular music now. Now, I, I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that it is not for me. Like, yeah. That's cool. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and that's cool. But I can listen to it and go, love that snare. Yeah. Yeah. Snare's brilliant. Oh, right. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Not in a deconstructing kind of takeaway, but I can listen to most things and go, you know what? Overall, I would never listen to this. But the redeeming feature for me, I like that. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I'll hear records that I'm like, I, I've stopped doing it. I, I think you're right. It is an age thing. But there were kind of records I'm like, I really don't want to like this record. It would be an artist that I particularly don't like. I mean, like Rita Order that drives them out of the wall. But then I hear a record and I go, do you know what? It's a really good record. Yeah, yeah. And you can't take it away. But I also appreciate that it's not, it's like you say, it's not, it's not made for me. 
so I'm conscious I'm taking up all no, no, time. No, no, like, honestly, it's like I'm really enjoying this. It's great. Well, then, look, so, look, so if you're all right to carry on. Of course. Because, um, so you've spoken a lot about radio from a professional perspective. Yeah. But now you have a radio show. Yeah. And that was simply um, that uh, Eddie Temple Morris, who's, who's a, a loved, loved friend of mine, I've known Eddie for years, um, who he was, he was my drummer in my air guitar band that we put together when we entered the air guitar championships in, <laughs> I can't remember what it was, it was 2001, because I was, yeah, it was 2000, 2001. Um, and Eddie's a beautiful man. And uh, he called me up uh, about 18 months ago and said, I've got a, I can't, he's got a show at Soho Radio. Um, something, I think he was going away, he said, but I'm, tr so I'm trying to like fill it with people I know. He said, no, I wondered if you'd do it. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. First thing, what I always do is agree to things before I think about, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, oh. And then I said, oh, Jesus. And he went, I oh, can play it what you want, you can swear. So that's two things in my favour that I'm good at. Um, and he said, you know, just, you know, it's not a huge audience, but you'll, they'll love you. They really will. And I was like, okay, so I really worked. Not that I don't work on a hot hard on all the shows, but I really, it was Christmas, so I went for all my CD collection and tried to sort of bring, and I just thought, um, I'll try and do it as an all back to mine thing. And it's like, if you came around my house, I thought you were kind of night out, these are the kind of records that I kind of played it's on nice the thing. It's nice to have a theme. I think, yeah. I, I don't, I think that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so it was just kind of the start, of, uh, funny enough, the first record I played was side A of If You Want Blood, You've Got It, uh, not side B. Uh, and it was Riff Raff, ACDC. Um, and it's just, I think it's a great record and a great opener of a thing. And then I played all sorts of stuff, actually. I played some Van Halen. I played some uh, Jeff Buckley, who I'm obsessed with. I don't think I played Father John Misty then. Um, all sorts. I mean, Nine Inch Nails, uh, Jane's Addiction. Uh, yeah, I mean, all kind of like, you know, lots of stuff. And then some Felix the House Gat. Uh, the, the Ronnie Size remix of Basement Jack's Fly Life. Um, which is a record that I worked and loved. Classic. Yeah, and it was just like, you know, what an amazing record. And it was just like two hours, and I really enjoyed it. A couple of drinks before, a couple of drinks during, and really enjoyed it. And then um, and then he said, listen, I'm, I'm thinking of, of doing, he does every week, and he said, I'm thinking of splitting the remix up, uh, which is 10 to 12 on a Friday, to, to, to having a few people do it. He said, would you fancy doing it full time, in a sense, I do it once a month. And I just, I've, I've done about six or seven, and, and I... I I get very nervous, I get very anxious about it because um, I'm still learning. And, um, but I, I enjoy it and I try not to think, I kind of talk to, I don't, in the same way when I, do, when I do or when I do TV, I don't really think about the audience. When I do a live show or like this morning or Sunday brunch, I'm not thinking about, oh my God, there are X amount of people listening or, or watching particularly because there's nowhere near the amount of people that listen to the radio that, that watch this morning. But, I think that's the key. It's just like having a sort of having a conversation with yourself, or as, the, as we're doing. Imagine that we're just having a conversation with one, and I'll ramble on about bands that I'd love or have discovered, and you know, there's a couple of bands that I've turned um, listeners onto that I've that I've discovered um, last couple of years that, I've, that I love. I've, I'm desperate. One of my favorite bands, a band called Russian Circles, and I go and see them every time, and they're playing this well, playing on the 16th of May. And it's the same night as Rayla Montaigne plays, and I'm going to both nights of Rayla Montaigne. I'm just of all the of all the nights, you know. But um, two very different bands there. I mean, Rayla Montaigne playing an acoustic set, um, and uh, Russian Circles that just play records that will that pin your face against the wall. Wow. Incredible band. 
no, three piece bass guitar and drums no vocals um amazing um but they're kind of just, just stuff i play and I, I i try and play stuff that when i hear excites me um and maybe stuff that i haven't heard before um and then i'll play old tracks i always play an old track because I, I i think there's so many records that got missed and i remember the first show i did was i played i said i said on mike i said it's but you know I got to thinking this is probably the first and last time I'll do the show. So I thought well, maybe I'll play my favourite one-hit wonder. And it was Space Hog in the meantime, <laughs> which I thought was an amazing record when it came out. And I just sort of played records from like 20, 30 years ago. Sure. But you do go, God, do you know that record is 30 years old? And yes. you're like, boy. But um, it's just fun. And they let me play what I want. And I can say what I want. I, I do swear. But And I listened to the first one back and I, I realised that I say the word incredible and, <laughs> and, inc and incredibly amount of time i think i must have counted it about nine or ten times in the first hour because <laughs> i'm just kind of like buzzing and going oh this is an incredible what an incredible record god i forgot how incredible that yeah it's fun it's good it's, it's, it's really nice whether it's i don't think it's a career but i really enjoy doing it yeah but but that's it so do you go into how do you put it together do you have a, how fixed does your playlist do you turn up with X amount of records that you might choose from in that. Yeah, I tend hours. to. I mean, thankfully, because I work in working music, I, I'm on a lot of the labels mailing this, which is good, and they also know the stuff I'm going to play, so they won't send me a record that they didn't feel will work. Um, so that's kind of what, what what we do there, and then I also kind of because it's a Friday, I'm also fortunate in the sense that all the new stuff comes out on a Friday, and you mm -hmm. can kind of play stuff that you can find that day. So what I tend to do is, I on a Friday afternoon or Friday morning, I'll, I'll put. 30 records together um, and then I'll sort of put them in a track listing um, and normally have to drop five or six or seven sure. um, but I've normally got a bit of an idea and I try and I try and do it like a mixtape or or, or, or or kind of a tape that you used to do when I was a kid mm -hmm. where you'd work out this the sequence of what goes into what and if I can do a theme between one and the other I could do one the other week there was a really uh, odd Trent Reznor link between the three records and I just went and it's just it's just it's just fun and it's really good actually because it's sort of enjoy not that I've fallen out of love with with radio music but it, it it's nice to nice to hear stuff like we were talking you know before we put this together about the Gaz Coombs record yep. you know and I heard those two the first two singles and I can't still can't believe and I said it on the last show I still can't believe this is the guy you know that did all right with the Martin Chops because it's I think the album's out today actually or but but or soon because right because I'm really excited to hear that record week. yeah it's, it's good and I wouldn't really expect good. I wouldn't have listened to that if that would have popped up on Spotify I wouldn't have even given it a moment's yeah. thought but because I kind of heard it and spent time listening to it for the show I was like it sounds great yeah it is really good the uh, I loved his previous album right like, um, it was it was playlist quite a lot I listened to Six Music a lot yeah like mostly from my age yeah and, yeah, I um, yeah I mean it's good because it's really good like, yeah actually it sounded, it sounded like I was shitting on it but actually it's just no it's no just a of great course, yeah. station um, but they played quite a lot of the previous album and so I bought it loved the singles bought the album listened to it and actually I didn't realise just how good just how good some of those tracks are oh wow they genuinely are like you listen back to them afterwards for the bit of distance when they're not on the radio and you're conditioned in that kind of way yeah. to go oh it's on the radio it's great yeah but then you listen to them after and you're like, actually, these are, these are superb. Oh, like, wow. Genuinely superb. I'm a huge Supercross fan, yeah. anyway. Like, that, that's, you know, so I'm predisposed to, to being into it. 
but the new album's really good. Good. Well. I, I, I want to listen to it. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of finding time to, to do it, I well, suppose, in a way. It, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it, it, that kind of just doing that is fun for me. It's kind of it's, it's cathartic in the fact I have to listen to stuff and then I'll hear a record and or something will put, you know, you get earworms and you wake up in the morning, you, you, you remember a record from 20 years ago. Jesus Christ, I played that for ages. So, um, and I'll go and see a band. It's like, you know, I, I played, um, I played the new Ray LaMontagne single when I, when I was on, on the last, was it last Friday show or the Friday before? I can't remember. But I played that because, you know, I'm, I'm going to see him for the two London gigs. Mm. And um, yeah, you just, you just kind of play stuff you want, really. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start to wrap up. Cool. You because, not because I want to, but because I feel I need to let you go and we could actually carry on going forever. But I want to talk to you about one more. This is, I'm being really selfish yeah. about this. Stone Temple Pilots? Ah. Um, I love them. Um, let me just shut this door. Um, no, I love them. I, 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 um, I heard Plush for the first time and thought it was incredible. Went to see him a bunch of times. Oh, you went to see him? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I saw him a few times. I missed out on all of the great Oh, uh, in fact, I've got a real, a, 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 an absolute true story that you'll love. Um, they were playing Brixton on the same night, and this will show you how long ago it was, um, that Arsenal were playing Leeds at Arsenal. Oh, right. And I, as a Leeds fan, used to go to all the Leeds, all the Leeds London matches, you know, because we were, we were able to see Chelsea and Spurs and Arsenal, mm -hmm. and, you know, there was a whole bunch of teams you'd go and see. But on the same night, Stone Temple Pilots are playing, I went, I'm going to Stone Temple Pilots. You know, with respect, and see Leeds whenever. These sure. bands very rarely play. And um, so my, my Leeds mates were like, oh, okay, fine. So, la, la, la. <laughs> All right, it's you gone. Um, and I'm stood there with my then girlfriend, and I've got a Nokia phone, and I've got, I get the results text to me. And um, we're like, I think it's 1-1 one, one at some point. Mm. And... Um, they stone empires are going through their kind of thing and then they kind of take their instruments off and pull two four four stools to the front and um and kind of go into this acoustic moment and um scott whelan obviously is no longer with us and had his you know huge demons and issues mm. was going through this sort of ramble about you know a point a particular point of his life where you know probably drugs and alcohol were, were really prevalent and something disastrous happened and just as he said that, my phone bleeped and we'd just scored in the last minute. And I went, yes! Yeah. <laughs> and about 50 people looked at me like <laughs> I could just like, you know, shat through their doorstep. They were just like, how disgusting. And I wanted to go, I, I, it's the lead to his up, but I was, I was just yeah, stare yeah, at yeah. But I loved him. And then, and then obviously when he... Went on to do Velvet Revolver. I went to see them a bunch of times, and um, I was really, uh, really sad when you know we we I think we in terms of all the fans knew that he was going to probably leave us earlier than sure. he should have. Um, but those first two albums were incredible. Unreal. I mean, really great. And that second album was just I mean, yeah. Vaseline and like you know Kitchenware and all. I mean, just a great, just an alternative so that that slightly pure grunge sound that was going on them. They were kind of like a dirty rock grunge record. 
But just, yeah, but really, uh, so yeah, I completely agree. I think that's, yeah, so it was described as grunge, it was grunge at the time and all the rest of it, but you knew it was different. Yeah. I mean, all of the, you know, all of the big bands were different. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not fair to call Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Yeah. And they're, they're all just brilliant, they're individual completely, in their own yeah. way. But even a band apart, Stone Temple Pilots, yeah. just, they sounded, especially on Purple, Purple for yeah. me is, yeah. I mean, it's the high water. Yeah. And they had, a, they had, I mean, particularly Scott, they just had this swagger. You know, he would come on in like a pair of like PVC trousers, a vest and like a German marching hat and looking anything above eight stone would have been amazing, would have been would have been complimentary with a cane and black eyeliner and just smashed it. Just was just like held the stage an incredible frontman uh, and, a, and actually quite an amazing singer when you kind of get past. He's oh, got definitely. a great, great range. Lyrically, I thought he was fantastic. I agree. And um, amazing imagery, yeah, amazing imagery. And he looked, he looked like a leading, and I thought what that allowed the rest of the band to do was sort of stand back and let him, let him run it. And there's, there's sort of a number of bands that are like that, where you, you really focus on the lead singer, and the rest of them are kind of like, you know, I mean, you know, I'll give you, you know, if you, I'm sure the guys from Snow Patrol love the fact that they can wander around and earn an amount of money, and they don't get, by, don't get stopped by anyone. But but they just had a really good a really good look to them and again it was a it was a time it was like ninety two ninety three ninety into ninety four those first two albums and always did, it always did a great show and they were they were a band that I would have always gone to see mm. and when they moved into Velvet Evolver that was that was a kind of no brainer for me um, and it was just obviously really sad that that what we all knew was going to happen happened really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the same with you know Chris Cornell and there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of people that less so with Chris Cornell because you kind of thought he'd, he'd fought his demons and he was better sure, you know yeah, you know yeah. from where he was with the first couple of albums to where he was at, you know on his own I mean doing the Bond theme is quite an achievement for somebody who had been through those things mm. but fortunate to see them a bunch of times as well I mean I mean I've been really fortunate to see most of the bands or artists that that I've um, that I love because if they're playing I'll go and buy, I'll buy a ticket. Right, I'm going to ask the final question. Yeah. Because I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to ask, do you think there's anything that links all the music that we've spoken about and you love together? Is there any kind of defining threads that run through them, anything like that? Um, I mean, to me, this is selfish, they're just records that I love. Brilliant. It's just a kind of like, there is, it isn't case in black and white and night and day. They're just records that I love and that have excited me, that I've heard them. And something inside me has 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 set a light, has caught fire. Um, I don't think there's any. I mean, you know, jazz again is. This, you know, we talk about art. Jazz, I don't really understand, but I'll listen to King Curtis or Miles Davis or those kind of things and, and go, "This is a great record." I don't know what makes it a great record. I mean, I did. I, I worked with Goldie last year, and, and and we we had him play at a jazz cafe a couple of times, and we sat down and he started talking to me about jazz, and he'd lost me after about forty five seconds, because I didn't even know what he's talking about. Yeah, but I'm sure. going, well, I like these artists, but and of course he's a, an artist, so I go, well, I kind of like him, but I don't know why. But it's just something that, for me, they're all good records. For me, they've excited me, and and, and a bit like the show, majority of them are something that I've never heard before, and I think that's the that's the first steps into into some really long love affairs I've got with bands and it is it is a love affair because you know you 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 
you invest in them and, and you listen to them and you try and work out the lyrics, it, it, it's, it's definitely a love thing. And as with some relationships, some of them sour and some of them continue. And I think that's why you there are bands and artists that you listen to that you will listen to for the rest of your life. Probably mine will be definitely Jeff Butler. I've been listening to him since 1994. Without a doubt, Ray LaMontagne, Father John Misty, I hope will still be making records in 10, 15 years time. Yeah, it will be amazing. Is this, is it a second away from just going, fuck it. Yeah, man. yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Um, and then there's bands that I've, that I've loved before and, and then if I see them tour, I, I won't think about getting a ticket at all. But it's just, yeah, it's a love affair, I think. Perfect. Cool. Well, there's a thousand things more we could speak about, but I think we'll call it that. Thank you, man. It's been great. Excellent. Thanks, mate.